Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. How many of you at times get tripped up over perspective? That what you perceive to be the reality isn't always the reality. Um, Believe it or not, that is the question I had written down on Monday of this week. As we're looking at the theme of this of peace and, and living in a kingdom of peace, which is what God's kingdom is. It's a kingdom of peace in heaven that he desires for it to be on earth. That's why we pray that prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We don't see enough representation of peace in the world today because, quite frankly, at least in our culture, I'm not sure the church is fulfilling its role and responsibility as being a kingdom of peacemakers. What is your perspective on life right now? I listen to various podcasts, I read various news apps. You know, back in the day, it used to be Grandpap sitting in his lazy boy reading the paper. Now it's uh, people like me who get their paper on news apps. And so I read, I read a myriad of different news apps. I read uh, both sides of the issue as much as I conceivably stomach it from either side. And I try to reason what is the truth buried within all of the hyperbole and all of the extremism that resides, quite frankly, on both sides of issues. And, and honestly, it's easy to get confused. It's easy to know what is right, what is wrong, what is true, what is false in a culture that is driven by postmodern ideology and philosophy. If you don't know what that is, please look up postmodernism. What we are experiencing today and have been for a minimum of the past two decades is postmodernism in full gear, okay? And postmodernism, and this is way oversimplifying it, is this. It is where truth is a relative concept. Right and wrong are relative concepts. Basically, whatever you deem as truth for you is your truth. And whatever I deem as truth for me is my truth. But when you really press into that, if you can get beyond the anger points and reason with somebody on issues of postmodernism and what truth really is, you find out that that breaks down under logical, rational argumentation and critical thought. But we don't live in a reasonable day and age. We don't live in a reasonable time period. So what is it with perspective? Well, here's how this ties into perspective. What your perspective might be about a given issue, unless it's rooted in Christ, could be skewed. Actually, more than likely is. Now, I'm a hater for claiming that. Those of you at home watching this, if you share this with many of your friends, again, I've said this before, I may be shut down on Facebook or YouTube because I believe truth is rooted in Christ. I believe Jesus, when he says that he was the way, the truth, and the life, 
and no one could come to the Father except through him, that that is a truth statement because he is the truth. And as a truth statement and being the truth incarnate himself, then I have a choice to make. Either I believe that he is truly the truth and who he is as God in the flesh and that the foundation for all truth resides in him or I go to whatever means of truth that are available to me in society. There is a right and wrong. There is a good and bad. There is truth and falsehood. The question is, where do you root your truth? Where do you find reality, not just for you, but what is reality and what is truth? Jesus, after he's arrested, tried before the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish high council of the day, is then handed over to Pilate on trumped up charges because they can't crucify him. And Jesus is now being questioned by Pilate. There's this little bit of back and forth between King Herod and Pilate. Eventually Jesus is with Pilate where Pilate has to make the final decision. And he starts asking questions of Jesus, really trying him and trying to figure out, why, why are you standing before me again? What have you done that's illegal with regard to Roman government and policy and law? There was nothing. Pilate could not find anything, but he was caught in a political quandary because in Pilate's perspective, he knew the truth of the reality was he couldn't crucify Jesus, not really, because there was nothing to crucify him on, and yet he knew there was a mob outside picketing and on the verge of rioting, and if he didn't bow to their whims and fancies, then he could be in big trouble. Does this sound familiar? And so when he, Jesus says, in this chance meeting with Pilate, that his people, his followers, are followers of the truth. And they know the truth. And, and Pilate asks him this question, what is the truth? Now he asks it flippantly, but he doesn't wait for a response. And this is the problem in our culture. This is the problem in our culture, is that we ask the question, what is truth? And then we walk away. Because we don't really believe there's an answer for it. Even in the church. Even believers in Christ are beginning to get muddied in the waters of culture to where we're saying, well, is this behavior really wrong? Is that behavior really so absurd? Is this, would this separate somebody from God? I mean, it's all about God's grace, right? Yes. It's also about truth. See, John, the gospel writer, says that Jesus was a man full of grace and truth. He had both in great supply. He didn't allow one to lopside the other. Thus, being God in the flesh, full of grace and truth, guess what his perspective was? Completely and utterly centered in the Father. He did not make a decision, make a move without consulting with the Father. Why? Because he knew the basis for all reality and all truth was the Father. 
Church, we have got to get back to the truth, which is God. And the foundation of his word and the word that not only was written, but became flesh and dwelt among us. Come to a passage today, but before I get there, there's a story of a kid, probably four or five years old, super stoked. Comes to his mom one day and he says, mom, guess what? I'm nine feet tall. Now this pipsqueak is probably about three feet at most. I'm nine feet tall. And she, (laughs) yeah, do tell. No, seriously, I'm nine feet tall. What? How did you measure yourself? He says, okay, well, here's the deal, mom. My foot is a foot. So I took my shoe off and I measured how many feet tall I am by my foot. And she says, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Um, no, you're, you're really not nine feet tall because your standard of measurement's off. We measure ourselves by a 12-inch ruler, or measuring tape in our case, maybe, because a foot is 12 inches, not the size of whatever foot you have on your person. Truth is not a relative concept, but we have so many people in society measuring themselves by improper standards. We have too many groups within society that measure truth and falsehoods by the wrong standard. And when you measure by the wrong standard, what are you going to end up with? A bad result. Always. If I'm a construction worker, how many construction workers do I have? Any people that have been familiar with and do some even home projects construction. If you go to build something, what happens if you don't measure? And measure accurately. What is the rule? Uh, let's see, where is, uh, is Al here? Whitmire? We got one, one, I know he's on a construction guy. I know what, there's a rule in, in construction measure twice, cut once. <laughs> right? Measure twice, cut once. Why do we do that? Because we want to make sure. We're getting the right length for the project we're making. What happens in society when we measure by the wrong standard or don't use measurements at all and just kind of eyeball it? You get what oftentimes eyeballing does. You might be close or you could be way off depending on if you're cross-eyed or not. We come to this passage where we're exploring 2 Kings as we do our weekly uh, readings and daily readings through the Word. I hope that you've been able to keep up with this. I know how hard it is when you start out the beginning of the year with this challenge to read through the Bible and you're like, oh, I I missed a day. And you're like, now I've got to catch up on two days. And then two becomes three and four and so on and so forth. You can do it. I believe in you. But if you've been following along and kept up with this, we would be around in this spot in Scripture right now, 2 Kings chapter 22. And we come upon the story of a king over the southern kingdom named uh, Josiah. Josiah is one of those names we name our kids because why? He was a good king. He was one of the eight good kings of the southern kingdom. There were no good kings over the northern kingdom. And he was one of the good king, one of the three good kings that brought revival to the land. Did you know that? 
So there were eight good kings in all of about 40 kings between the north and southern kingdoms. Their eight were all from the southern kingdom called Judah. And of those eight, there were only three that brought revival to the land. What is revival? Say it again. Life, okay, yes, revival exudes life. What else is revival? If you, uh, at home, yell it out to me. <laughs> Actually, I know you can type and we get your responses. So what is revival? Renewal. Renewal. What is the root word that comprises the word revival? Resu revive. <laughs> what does it mean to be revived? Brainwashed. Brainwashed? I said, well, I didn't hear you. Um, what it means to be revived is to be rejuvenated, to be restored. Somebody said, to be, to be, I can breathe and everything is, oh, this is good. Take in the air, take it. It's this sense of rejuvenation that leads us to this place of goodness. When's the last time you felt revived? Just in general, your physical self. Your mental health, your emotional health. When was the last time? Think about that. When was the last time you felt revived spiritually? Because quite honestly, if you're coming here to be revived, revival doesn't start specifically in a space, it starts in you. And for revival to come to God's holy church, his remnant of believers, his remnant of believers, it must start with you. And how does it start? It starts through prayer. Revival cannot happen apart from God. And communion with God through prayer is the only way to gain intimacy with him. It's one of our first points here, to know Christ intimately is the beginning part, but it is a continual part because you cannot know God exhaustively. That's why this is a daily taking up our cross, denying ourselves and following him. is because we want to grow deeper in an understanding and a knowledge of who he is. But not only in the mind, but in the heart. To be so tied to him through the power of his Holy Spirit that we remain revived through the infilling of his spirit. So that we flow out, or what flows out of us from that Holy Spirit sparks that in others. Revival doesn't look the same everywhere or in every person. I've heard of revivals of the Welsh revivals and the Asbury revivals and the great awakening in our past history as a nation. And if you look at them, there is one catalyst and it's prayer. It's communion with God. It always starts there. Always starts there. That is the one catalyst. Now how it unfolds is quite different. And I've said this in the past couple of sermons, maybe, or at least I've referenced it, that when God truly revives his people, pours out his spirit on a people who are truly repentant and truly connected with him through prayer and worship, it doesn't look like what you would expect. Uh, the, the pastor, way back in the day, when there was an outpouring in Pensacola, they call it the Pensacola, Brownsville, Pensacola Revival, the pastor in one of his, and don't quote me on this as far as it being a book or a talk he was giving, but he said, within 
God's pouring out his spirit upon the Brownsville church that he was pastor of back in the day. When it first started happening, the people had been praying for months and years. God, pour out your spirit. Revive us again. They've been praying, and God said, fine, you're ready. And he poured out his spirit. Guess what happened within the first six months of that church's life? 75% of the people that had been praying for that, he said, left the church. Why? Because it wasn't what they expected revival would look like. And so when God pours out his spirit upon all flesh in a space and a place, it may not look like what you expect it to be. Sure, test it out. Make sure it's from God. Don't willy-nilly fall head over heels in following something that may not be from God. But when you've tested it against his word and you see that truly miracles are happening... Jesus was called out for casting out demons, and they said he was Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. And Jesus says, wait a minute, why would Satan cast himself out of other people? So when you use the logic of God and you see these miracles, why would the enemy want to set you free from any kind of bondage? To set you free in Christ. So there's ways to test this, but when you're not ready, when you're not prayed up, in a way that you say, all right, God, whatever it looks like on your side of heaven, let it be so this side. And it may blow a lot of our expectations and perspectives out of the water. So we come up on this passage of Josiah. Guess when he took the throne? He was eight years old. Now, Chronicles talks about 18, but there's some debate among scholars there that at 18, he really started to institute some reforms. But at eight, he gained the throne. Why at eight? Because his dad got assassinated after the death of his father, Manasseh. So you have Manasseh, Ammon, A-M-O-N, and then Josiah. All right? Ammon was not on the throne very long at all. Manasseh, his grandfather, was. He was one of the most wicked and evil kings Judah had known. Horrible, deplorable kind of guy. Setting up idol worship, allowing all different types of wicked behavior to happen under his leadership and authority. Ammon takes the throne. We don't know how he would have been. But then Josiah becomes king at age eight. How many of you are eight years old? How many of you have been eight years old? How many of you stuck in an eight-year-old mentality? <laughs> Me too. So he takes the throne at eight. And this is where we pick up his story. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for how many years? 31. I realize that's small. I've got to start making those bigger. Forgive me. He reigned for 31 years. His mother was Jedida, uh, sorry, daughter of Adiah, of Boscath, from Boscath. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight and followed the example of his ancestor, David, not Manasseh, his grandfather. He did not turn away, or excuse me, he did not turn away from doing what was right. In the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah sent Shaphan, son of Azaliah, and grandson of Meshulam to the court, sec- uh, the court secretary to the temple of the Lord. He told him, go to Hilkiah, the high priest, and have him count the money the gatekeepers have collected from the people at the Lord's temple. Now, 
Because the temple was in such disrepair, worship was in bad shape because of his grandfather Manasseh. Ammon didn't have any opportunity to make any kind of reforms. People quit giving. Oh, is this going to be a sermon on tithing? No. It's not. But the people quit giving. But there was enough money in there because there were still a faithful few who were giving to the temple treasury of their tithes and offerings. And so... He said, go, go collect the money from the, uh, from the, collected from the people at the Lord's temple. And then verse 5, entrust this money to the man assigned to supervise the restoration of the Lord's temple. It had fallen into disrepair. We oftentimes forget that the temple, Solomon's temple at this point, had been in existence for a few hundred years. How many of you know, how, uh, how many of you live in a hundred-year-old house? Um, do, do you wish there were things about it you could repair, right? And so now imagine a, four, 400 years, 300 years. Imagine if it had fallen into disrepair, what you'd have to do to fix it. So this is happening in the temple because Manasseh didn't put much effort into it. He was more focused on pagan worship and idolatry. He goes on to say, then they can use it to pay the workers to repair the temple. They will need to hire carpenters, builders, masons. Also, um, have them buy the timber and the finished stone needed to repair the temple. But don't require the construction supervisors to keep account of the money they've received, for they are honest and trustworthy men. <laughs> I think that's funny. Yeah, just give them all the money. They don't need to give receipts. Would that fly? He really had to trust those men, right? Verse 8, Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the uh, court secretary, I have found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. Now stop there for a minute. <laughs> I found it! It shouldn't have had any, it had to be anywhere where it had to be found. It should have had to be in a place where it was known, what we get through this passage of Scripture, it hadn't been touched in a while, probably for decades. Now, there was a closet in the temple, and there is a closet in synagogues known as the place where the scrolls are kept. And in that place where the scrolls are kept is where the Word of God is kept, the Torah, at least in that day and age. Because the prophets were just continuing to write their work. So we at least have the Torah, and we have the Torah scrolls. Torah scrolls being Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It is believed by most scholars that he found the Deuteronomy scroll because of the things that he did following finding this scroll. So listen to what happens. Then Hilkiah gave the scroll to Shaphan, and he read it. And then Shaphan went to the king and reported, Your officials have turned over the money <clears throat> collected at the temple of the Lord to the workers and the supervisors of the temple. Shaphan also told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a scroll. <laughs> He's given me a scroll. He didn't say he'd given me, because Shaphan read it. You would think he'd say, um, Hilkiah, the high priest, found the Torah scroll, found the Deuteronomic scroll, the law, but he doesn't. I find this super interesting. I looked in various different versions. 
Shaphan just comes, he says, yeah, hey, uh, Helkiah found a scroll. Is that how we treat God's word? He found a scroll. So Shaphan read it to the king. How many chapters are there in Deuteronomy? At least. I'm not going to ask any of my students. <laughs> There's over 30, I'll just tell you that. So he sat and read the whole scroll of Deuteronomy, more than likely. And when the king heard what was written in the book of the law, he tore his clothes in despair. I find it interesting he's the only one that did that. Hilkiah didn't do that. Actually, doesn't, we aren't given this idea that he found the scroll and read it. Hilkiah said, oh, look, a scroll, and he gives it to Shaphan. Shaphan reads it, or Shaphan, depending on how you, potato, potato. And he reads it. He's like, oh, we found a scroll. And he takes it to the king, tells him about it, and he reads it before him. And then at the hearing of the word at age 18, 18 years, ladies and gentlemen, on the front row, and those of you mingled throughout, he is broken over the reading of this word. Then he gave these orders to Helkiah the priest, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Akbor, son of Micaiah. Hey, there's where we got your name, Micaiah. Um, Shaphan, son, uh, the court secretary, and Isaiah, the king's personal advisor. He says to them, go to the temple and speak to the Lord for me and for the people and all, for all of Judah. Inquire about the words written in this scroll that's been found. For the Lord's great anger has been burning against us because of our ancestors, and they've not, because our ancestors have not obeyed the words in this scroll. We've not been doing everything it says we must do. Pause. What did he just say? God's angry at us because we've not been doing what his standard says we should do. We've not been living by the basis of truth. We veered so far off the course that we aren't in the weeds anymore. We're in the muck and the mire. And so he's sorrowful and grieving over the fact that now as king, this is what's happened to the people. And he says, I want you to go inquire of the Lord. So he sent this group of guys to inquire of the Lord. Well, why didn't he go? Because in that day and age, you could only have the priest to go do that. The priest had a role and a responsibility. That's not the case in our day and age. We can all approach the throne room of grace with confidence now because of what Christ did for us. But in that day, Hilkiah could pray, but in order to truly get presence with the Lord, he had to go through the processes that the law had inquired of him or required of him to do. And so he says, okay, Hilkiah and these other guys, I want you to go to the temple and seek the Lord to see what, what should we do? What should we do? We have not been doing everything that it says we must do. Is it okay just to do some of the things? Was it? Is it okay to do most of the things, but to have your own pet sin and hold on to it? That's what he was asking. No, we've not been doing all of it. Hook, line, and sinker, the whole thing. So Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, Akbor, Shaphan, and Asiah went to the new quarter of Jerusalem to consult with the prophet Huldah. So who were the voices of God in that day and age? The prophets were. 
She was the wife of Shalom, son of Tikvah, son of Harthas, or Harhas, the keeper of the temple wardrobe. She said to them, The Lord, the God of Israel, has spoken. Go back and tell the man who sent you. Who was the man who sent? Josiah, the now king of Judah. This is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on this city and its people. All the words written in the scroll that the king of Judah has read will come true. For what, what words had he read? If you go through and you read Deuteronomy, here's what happens. You see that Moses, who wrote Deuteronomy, said on behalf of God, this is what God requires of you. When you come into the land that I have promised you, this is how you should conduct yourself. The laws that should govern the land Do not veer from it to the left or the right. Stay right on the path of what this instruction means and says. Every jot and tittle, every bit of it. But then in Deuteronomy, you get warnings from God too. If you do what is required of you, it will go well in the land. I will be your God, you will be my people, I am your protector, your provider, you won't have a need in the world, I will be with you. But, if you veer to the left or the right, if you do what I've commanded you not to do, and don't do what I've commanded you to do, then curses will be poured out. Punishment will ensue, discipline will happen, Quite frankly, I will depart from you. And then, if you continue to want to do it your own way, you'll reap the consequences of doing it your own way. And it won't go well. So that's what Huldah, the prophetess, is saying to the priest and the man that had come on behalf of Josiah. God's already determined. Judgment's coming, and there's nothing you can do about it. How hopeless of a situation is that? Verse 17, for my people have abandoned me, God says, and offered sacrifices to pagan gods, and I'm very angry with them for everything they have done. My anger will burn against this place, and it will not be quenched. Now, we get this image or idea when we pull that out of context that God, they had just messed up once, or they just set up this one temple, or they just did this one thing. This had been going on for centuries up to this point. It started with Solomon. And God got angry with Solomon, but he said, because I made a promise to your dad, I'm not going to wipe your line out because I still have a plan. How much will God take, will God deal with, of our own willingness to do our own thing? Then verse 18, Huldah gives this extra bit of prophecy. But go to the king of Judah who sent you to seek the Lord and tell him, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the message you've just heard. You were sorry and humbled yourself, Josiah, before the Lord when you heard what I said against this city and its people through his word. And that this land would be cursed and become desolate. You tore your clothing in despair. Was Hulda there? (laughs) It can kind of be spooky when God's prophets know things about us when they haven't been publicized. 
You tore your clothing in despair and you wept before me in, my, in repentance. And I have indeed heard you, says the Lord. So I will not send the promised disaster until after you have died and been buried in peace. You will not see the disaster I'm going to bring on this city. So they took their message back to the king. Here's the key point really quickly this morning. The law of God puts peace in perspective. When the law of God, and again, what the law is done for, we don't live by the law anymore. No, the living law came and actually signed the contract on an agreement we couldn't fulfill. And he gives us this grace, but what is required in that grace of us is to receive it. You've heard me say this before. Somebody can give you a gift, but you can reject it, can't you? Yes? I'm not going to ask you how many people in this place have rejected a gift. But a gift freely given is not oftentimes, or is not always freely received. It can be rejected. But it requires something on our part. When it's given, we have to receive it. And when we receive it, we take it into ourselves. It becomes a part of us. It's useful to us. So the law of God puts peace into perspective. And what we see in Josiah's life is that God promised him, yes, it's punishment and judgment still coming, but it won't come in your lifetime. Do you see the mercy and the grace of God even in this situation where he says you'll die in peace? First point I want us to take away from this really quickly this morning is this. Josiah did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight and did not turn away from doing what was right. What does that mean? Did you notice what that said? Josiah did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight. Let me say that again. Josiah did what was pleasing in whose sight? Not the world's. Not, not, not your churches, not other people, not your work, but... Josiah did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight. Proper perspective in life is when we look to the Lord before anyone else. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight, not the world's sight. When, When we measure ourselves by the world's standards, we may come out good at times and we may come out bad in others. Because the world standard is very askew. No matter how hard society, governments try to establish a standard that is good and righteous and holy, if it's not established and rooted in God through Christ Jesus, there's something amiss. Now, one of the interesting and amazing things about the United States of America is that we were, our The fundamentals of our uh, Declaration of Independence and our Constitution are rooted, when we say in Judeo-Christian principles, that's a fancy way of saying that they're rooted in the Word of God, Old and New Testament. Okay? Any other society who is built and rooted on the foundation of God's word, when it veers from that, reaps the curses and the consequences of not adhering and aligning with that. Even God's people suffer because of it. Josiah did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight. Church, there's always been an opportunity for compromise. Compromise in our standards, our faith. Because it's easier, quite frankly, 
to not incur the wrath of society and the world, or so we think. But the reality is there is a wrath and a discipline that comes from one who is so much greater than any of the rulers of this world, who is the king of kings and lord of lords. And unless we truly fear him above all else, we will not live in peace, but rather be grasping at straws in society. Josiah was pleasing in the Lord's sight. So how was Josiah pleasing in the Lord's sight? Let's take a few notes from Josiah here. There are a couple things to consider. Number one, God looks upon the heart and not the outward appearance of a person. A person can look good on the outside, but be dirty and corrupt on the inside. Have you seen politicians that way? Oh, they are pretty. They are pretty. They smell good. I get choked up on it too. They smell good. They're pretty. And they say things I want to hear. Not all the time, but for the most part, they will feed me a line of stuff that make me feel comfortable with what they're about to do. How many politicians in your lifetime have fulfilled their promises? <laughs> I'd say very, very few. Very, very few. Why? Because they're all human. They do the best they can, or at least some of them try. Others are in it for power, prestige, and control. I'd say very many of them are. Josiah was good on the inside, not just on the outside. And that's what made all the difference. What God could see in Josiah was something deeper than actions and words. God saw the inner depths of Josiah's being, a, a desire for God and doing what was right. He wanted to do what was right. It grieved him that what was happening wasn't what God desired for them. It grieved him that he, he tore his clothes and he went into mourning for a while. Number two, the thing we learn about Josiah is this. Because of his sincere heart toward God, Josiah made instrumental decisions, even at a young age, a teenager, if you will, to restructure the kingdom of Judah around God or Yahweh, not these other so-called gods of the pagan nations. Their society under Josiah, and I guarantee you it ticked a group of people off. He said, we're getting rid of all the other worship. We're tearing down the shrines and the false gods. No more sacrifices to these types of gods and no more doing these types of things. No more sexual immorality. No more sin and greed. No more lying and stealing and thievery. None of that. It's got to all be done away with. There, there was a business in that stuff. There was temple prostitution that was happening left and right in the pagan culture and they made a bunch of money off of it. There were other things happening in society. Vendors of these idols that were carved out of stone. They could, you could sell them. And Josiah comes in and in one fell swoop eradicates all that. Do you think he's loved by all the people? But who is pleased by that? The Lord. See, he was willing. Maybe even in his naivety, we might say, well, he was naive. He was young. He was ignorant. He was stupid. But there's something about 
the young. Isn't there? Where Jesus can look at them and say, unless you become like one of these little ones, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Sure, they may be afraid of the dark, but they trust in ways that humans become jaded, adults become jaded in. And the one they trust, or at least they should trust, should be taught to trust. And we don't get an indication that Josiah was taught to trust this God of his fathers, forefathers. His grandfather was a deplorable, horrible, wicked man. Josiah was an anomaly. Second thing, when, when confronted with the truth of God's word, Josiah wept and repented for his and the nation's sin and consulted with God on what he should do. Now, I'm not responsible for other people's sin. Neither are you. Say, so someday we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we will stand on account of our own behavior, decisions, so on and so forth. Now, what I will stand and you will stand in judgment of is to how obedient you were, what you did, and whether or not you believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, right? You said you believed in my son. How did you live that out? What was your standard and basis for living out the truth? Was it a relationship with me through my son? Or was it in your own power, own will, and own ways, thinking that you had a better solution? There are too many of us in the church, I mean, I'm just talking to the church, around. too many people in the church that think they have a better way than, of doing it than God does. Or we've got a new interpretation that the church has never adopted in its 2,000-year existence and even previous in the Jewish tradition. We now know what they didn't know. And so we now need to adjust our thinking and our way of teaching. You see, that had been tried in millennia past when false teachers would encroach upon the truth of God's word and begin to disseminate falsehoods within the body of Christ. They were called out and were held in judgment. See, nothing, nothing's new under the sun. False teaching for every generation has tried to creep in to the church. How do you know what is false and what's not? You got to know the word. Why do I tell you that all the time? You got to be rooted in Christ, and Christ is the living word that was made flesh and dwelt among us. What did Christ do? We say, we, we get this image of God oftentimes because we don't really read the word. That the God of the Old Testament is wrathful and mean, and the God through Jesus Christ in the New Testament is all flowers and roses and lovey doves. But when you read the Sermon on the Mount, you don't walk away saying, Oh, he's so cute. <laughs> Jesus is a cutie patootie and I'll follow him for the rest of my days. No, because when you read those three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you realize, whoa, that's the same God of the Old Testament. You've heard it said you shouldn't commit adultery. And Jesus cranks it up to 10. <laughs> if you lust in your mind, you've committed adultery. Really? So it's not just the action, it's what's in the heart? Yepper. You betcha. You've heard it said um, that you shouldn't murder. I say if you have hatred in your heart toward a brother, you stand in judgment. 
of the fires of hell. How many of you hate somebody? That, don't raise your hand. <laughs> if you're at home, you can, but if they, you hate the one that's next to you, that could be very awkward in your home, so don't do that. I've hated before. I've had such intense emotions, not of anger, but of rage toward another person before in my life. I won't say it's a common feature, but it's happened. And I hate the way it makes me feel. Hatred causes us to hate everything. When it starts to pollute the waters of our soul, if we allow it to take root, it can so hold sway over us that we wish a person was dead in our heart and minds. Where do you think murder comes from? We, we, have, this, we have this criteria in our own laws that says, well, you know, that was a fit of rage that just happened instantaneously. Well, I blacked out. I don't want to doubt that some people can black out, but I think it's reasonable to, to speculate, at least on this, that somebody doesn't do something without being prompted to do it, and they have a choice to do it or not, even if it's in the heat of the moment. Now, premeditated is where we sit and plan and ponder and concoct this, this great scheme to do what we know we shouldn't do. But the person who is controlled by the Holy Spirit of God, who is under the control of the Spirit of God rather than of their own baser instincts and sinful natures, do not give in to those things. They take every thought captive and they release it to Christ. Should I say this thing? Should I act this way? Lord, what do you think? Sometimes you should. Sometimes you shouldn't. See, what Jesus did, this God of the Old and the New Testament is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you're willing to have eyes to see and ears to hear as you read through the Word. I get this a lot as a pastor. How can you reconcile the Old and New Testaments? Well, it's really easy when you know what you're looking for. And it's not that I have to look hard. It jumps off the page. See, there are gaps in time period. When we read from one verse to the next, hundreds of years can pass. And we say, well, God is so rash. And it's this, all right, so let's say four generations pass, and he's allowed exceptions to his rule, and he's finally had enough after 200 years, 300, 400 years, 600 years. He's finally had enough. Does, is God justified in giving us a day versus a thousand years or a thousand years versus a day to make a decision? Parents, when you tell your kid to do something, what do you expect them to do? Do you ever share with me? Because your kid may be in here, right? I remember growing up, my dad was a harsh man. I tell you to do something, you do it, boy. You hear the echo? I get, I'm never accused of being too loud. All right? Actually, I'm accused all the time of being too loud. Let me say that that way. Yeah, I always had, did you do your chore? Well, why not? Forgetting's not an excuse. Because that's what, so my kids hear me, I forgot. That's not an excuse. 
<laughs> you know, there's a lot of truth in what my dad said, though. He may not have approached it in the right way. But I was told to do certain things and not do other things. And that there were consequences for when I disobeyed. And my dad didn't wait for decades to punish me. So who is more gracious? <laughs> a God who loves enough to say, I'm going to give you a little more time. You know what I expect of you. Here's what's going to happen. I want you to do this, that, or the other. You need to do this thing. See, God is not rash. He's very patient and long-suffering. He's willing to put up with a heck of a lot from us before he pours out his wrath. Lastly, oh, let me, let me get to this point. Did you notice who they go consult? Say that one more louder. What? Okay, and this is one of the things that the Church of God, which we're a part of, gets hammered on all the time. You're a leftist nutbag, blah, 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 because we allow women at the highest positions of leadership. They consulted a woman. I read as many commentaries as I could find on this to see what slants and perspectives I'd get. Some of the commentators were really baffled. Well, there must not have been a prophet. Well, actually, there was a prophet around. Guess what prophet was a contemporary of Huldah that we have a book of in Scripture? Jeremiah. Well, a couple of the commentators. So as they couldn't find Jeremiah. What? <laughs> he was on vacation. He was lying on his side for a few hundred days. He was not able to be, uh, be found. He was eating food that was cooked under poop. Seriously. It's, what's that, Ezekiel? Oh, it was Ezekiel. No, thank you for calling me out on that. Ezekiel ate the poop meat. But um, <laughs> you guys probably think I'm being profane. The Bible is profane. I'm just telling you what's in there as best I know how. Jeremiah, God called to do some crazy things too. Maybe he was laying on his side or picking his nose or something. But we don't know why he wasn't consulted. They went to hold of the prophetess. It's interesting. Many of the commentators said it was widely known that this woman spoke on behalf of God, which is why they went to her. They went to consult, to her, consult with her, who they knew had direct connection with God and was God's mouthpiece. <clears throat> well, Paul says, you're right. Paul says, women, remain silent to church. Don't presume to teach a man. But why? There were some aspects of this that we, we know were cultural, conditional aspects. There were times where Paul commends deaconesses in the book of Romans. We know Philip had daughters who were prophetesses in the New Testament book of Acts. We know that there is a commendation for women in leadership, but then there are other situations where they are told to remain silent. So what is the condition for that? I don't want to make a big sermon out of this, but I just want to be very clear in our teaching here of what we understand about Scripture is if you have a teaching of the Word, in the Word, that says they can do it here, but they can't do it here, <clears throat> then that should drive you deeper and say, well, I'm going to choose this one. <laughs> when you pick and choose, you get into a lot of false teaching narratives. You may inadvertently be withholding 
somebody who is God's chosen person to do X, Y, or Z by your own picking and choosing of Scripture. Be very, very careful that you don't become a stumbling block to somebody else. Huldah, Deborah, Ruth, and Esther. We say, well, they were servants. They, were, they played the role in says, Yeah, but do you, they are lifted up to the highest places of honor. And in the New Testament, we have this. So there is something deeper going on in the context where you, say, where you see in one aspect they can and in another aspect they can't. There's a contextual issue you have to look for. Now, where we base doctrine is on those areas of Scripture that are consistent. From Genesis to Revelation. Is there ever a time when it's okay to go murder somebody? Well, there's killing in the Bible. You can take a... You can take a a sword and slice them. God commanded it. Okay, well, we can get into to these conquest narratives, but there's a lot more going on than you realize. It's never okay to murder. It's just not. Okay? Never, ever. Adultery is never okay. Sexual immorality, greed is never okay. Did you know that? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I was talking with my wife about this yesterday. We were looking at the Word, and, and um, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul lays out not an exhaustive list, but a list that was pertinent to the church in Corinth, and he says, you guys used to struggle with these kind of behaviors, and let me tell you something, these kind of behaviors, people that continue in this lifestyle or these kinds of, uh, of things, will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Uh, is, how do we find our way around that? <clears throat> well, you've got to find the context for it. You just told us about context. Okay, well, and, and yeah, that's what I'm saying. What he's talking about in that list of behaviors, unequivocally from Genesis to Revelation, is never allowed. <clears throat> so he's just reiterating a point that this isn't allowable. So you're saying they're going to hell. I'm not saying it. I always get to, don't shoot the messenger. The message says this, it is our standard of truth. Now, our responsibility with this truth is to speak the truth in love so that others will be drawn into that hopeful relationship with Jesus Christ so that they can be redeemed from their sin and selfish ways and live for him. Like, hopefully, we have. That's the whole point of this. Lastly, I way got off on, on a tangent there. Because of Josiah's humble, repentant heart, neither he nor the nation of Judah would see judgment and destruction during his lifetime. <clears throat> Let me close with that. I love this. Because of one man's faithful expression of repentance, who else benefited from it? The nation. The nation. At least for 31 years. See, God said, I'm going to do this. But since I've seen your repentant heart, since I know sincerely you are broken over this and you want to do what's right, I'm going to withhold for a while. I meet so many people as a pastor who say there are billions of people on the face of the earth and there have been billions previous to our generation. Why am I significant? Well, you say, Brandon, Josiah was a king, so he had a really high position. Um, Do you realize how big the kingdom of Judah was at the time of Josiah? 
He was basically a mayor of a small city at this point. Okay? I'm just being honest with you. They were not in great number. The Assyrians had already overtaken the northern kingdom. All the ten tribes of the northern kingdom had been sacked. The capital in Samaria had been sacked. They were no longer in existence. They had been exiled throughout the kingdom of Assyria at the time. And now you have the Babylonians that are encroaching because they've now taken over the Assyrian territory. They are now the leading power under Nebuchadnezzar. And Josiah is king of Judah. An extremely small territory because they had lost a lot of their territory as these warring nations began to encroach upon Jerusalem. So Jerusalem, being the epicenter of Judah, the capital city, was really the fortified city that maintained uh, them being a nation, or made them be a nation in this time period. We think in terms of 21st century world, where there are billions and millions of people that, uh, millions of people that inhabit cities, billions of people that inhabit some countries, don't think that big. These were a little group now of people holding their own. And God said, I'm going to be with you, Josiah, at least in your generation, in your time period, until you die. I'm going to withhold this. Who's fighting your battles? Who do you lean on? Where's your perspective? What do you measure yourself by? Do you think, <clears throat> do you think you're insignificant? Have you been told you're insignificant by others? Whose voice should you be listening to? But Brandon, I can't hear his voice. You have to quiet yourself enough to be able to hear the still, small voice of God. If your life is louder than the voice of God, you need to quiet yourself. Be still and know that I am God. The psalmist says. As our worship team comes forward, what do you measure? Are you measuring yourself by your standards, by the world's standards, or by God's standards? Well, Brandon, every time I measure myself by my standards, I come out okay sometimes. The world's standards, I come out okay. But when I measure myself by God's standards, I fail every time. Oh, but isn't it great that in our day and age, we have good news? Amen. There was somebody who fulfilled that agreement on our behalf. <clears throat> That's what's truly called grace. You are a failure. I'm a failure. But in Christ, we are children of God. We are children of God. If you have believed in Christ as Lord and Savior of your life, but you still live as an outsider, what's your measurement? What's your standard? When you receive Christ, he redeems you, makes you into a new creation. You can now, you can now stand with God as his holy child, who is an heir to the royalty of whom and which he is a part of. I don't know what you dragged into this place this morning. Some of you drug in some pretty stinky stuff. But if you continue to believe the lie of the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy every fiber of your being, mentally, emotionally, physically, and otherwise, it's time to get that albatross off your back. 
Maybe you should have the faith of a little child, an eight-year-old who comes to the throne and is overwhelmed by responsibility but is too ignorant at, at, at that age to realize what he doesn't know. <laughs> Maybe we need to step into God's grace that way. Maybe we need to say, I don't know what I'm stepping into completely, but I believe it and I'm willing to take that step. Until you embrace what God has to offer, there's nothing he can do for you. He's done everything he can. The choice is yours. You hear me say this every week, and I know some of you hold back. <laughs> I, I do. I know and many of you hold back. <clears throat> and I'm not trying to manufacture a yank on your emotions. My dad used to say, that's all you do, Brandon, is you get up there and you manipulate emotions to get them to give money. Yeah, if I was in for the money, I'd be doing something different. I, I'm just saying... I believe this. I, believe, I will die believing this. I will die for what I believe in. Will you? Josiah was willing to, and God extended his reign. Father, remind us <laughs> that when we measure ourselves by any other standard than you, that we're measuring ourselves by a wrong standard. <clears throat> but also remind us when we measure ourselves by your standard and we come up short, that you've provided a way of access to you through your son, Jesus Christ. That through him we can have not only forgiveness of sins, but abundant life. Remind us of the truth of your word. That it is non-negotiable that your ways are higher and better than our ways and your thoughts are higher and better than our ways and that we need to unequivocally trust you. Not because you've earned it, but because you are the truth incarnate through Jesus Christ. Now this place, set captives free from physical ailments. I pray your holy blessing upon those here that are struggling with cancer or any other malady of the body, internal or external, that, God, you would set them free, that your Holy Spirit would come, clean them inside and out, and make them new. Spirit of infirmity, spirit of disease, in the name of Jesus, we command you to leave this place. Those with emotional issues and baggage, Father, you love and you want to see them healed and renewed and restored. So spirit of confusion, spirit of mental illness, spiritual of emotional darkness, in the name of Jesus, we cast you out of this place and out of this space. Holy Spirit, have your way this morning. And remind us, that when, you're, when we become new creations, when you have freed us from sin and death, we are free indeed. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes 
or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Maine is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.